0: Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists.
1: My name is Pradeep Kamath. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current third year pediatric critical care fellow, and we come to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to pediatric post cardiac arrest care. We are going to split this vast topic into two episodes. Part one is today the pediatric post-cardiac arrest syndrome, and particularly, we will be focusing on epidemiology, causes, and pathophysiology. Rahul, can you start with a patient case? Absolutely. Here's an 11-year-old previously healthy male admitted to the PICU after cardiac arrest. The patient was noted to be found unresponsive and submerged in a neighborhood pool. He was pulled out by bystanders, and CPR was started for five minutes with two rounds of epinephrine prior to achieving ROSC. During transport to the outside hospital, the patient developed hypotension requiring a continuous epinephrine infusion. His initial blood gas was notable for a mixed respiratory and metabolic acidosis. His pH was 7.0, CO2 was 60, and his base deficit was minus 20. His initial serum lactate level was 6.8. He presents to the pediatric ICU with a temperature of 36.6, heart rate in the 130s, mean arterial pressures or MAPs in the 50s, on an epinephrine infusion at 0.03 micrograms per kilo per minute. He is mechanically ventilated with notable settings of PEEP of 10, FiO2 of 65%. The patient is taken to head CT, which shows diffuse cerebral edema and diffusely diminished gray-white differentiation most pronounced in the basal ganglia.
0: Rahul, when you saw this patient in the PQ, what was the patient's physical exam like?
1: Important physical exam findings in this patient included an unresponsive patient that was intubated. The patient had a c-collar on, had bilateral non-reactive pupils at four millimeters. The patient received mechanical ventilation with coarse breath sounds heard bilaterally. The heart exam revealed tachycardia with no pertinent murmur or gallop. The patient neurologically did not respond to stimuli. The patient had intermittent jerking movements on my exam in both the arms and the legs. There was no evidence of rash or trauma, which I saw. Pertinently, the patient had no past medical history of seizures or any other heart condition. Mother stated that there were no home medications or toxic ingestions. So Pradeep, now he's transferred to the ICU. What all did we do?
0: So Rahul, once the patient was admitted to the PQ, we basically placed an arterial line, a central venous line. Uh, we also placed a urinary catheter as well as a temperature probe in the esophagus. Patient was, as you stated already, ventilated using a tidal volume of six cc's per kilo and was on a PEEP of 10. Uh, with an FIO2 hanging around 65% to keep the SATs greater than 94%. Patient initially had some runs of ventricular tachycardia, for which uh, lidocaine was used. Although initial EKG showed a mildly prolonged uh, QTC, it subsequently normalized, and this was considered to be due to his cardiac arrest and resuscitation. Echocardiogram revealed normal biventricular systolic function, and notably this is on epinephrine infusion and also showed normal origins of both the coronary arteries. Comprehensive arrhythmia panel did not identify a specific genetic cause for the patient's cardiac arrest. Patient was placed on a continuous EEG monitor, which demonstrated diffuse encephalopathy with myoclonic status, likely from anoxic brain injury and reperfusion. Patient was also placed on capra and valproic acid, Initial portable CT scan done on day of admission showed diffuse cerebral edema and diffusely diminished gray white differentiation, most notably in the basal ganglia, as you already pointed out. The MRI was deferred due to patient
1: instability. So, Pradeep, the case we talked about highlights a patient who had a trigger, which then resulted in cardiac arrest. And this is actually one of the more common reasons for children to be admitted to the PICU, especially in tertiary or quaternary care centers. Now, pediatric cardiac arrest could be due to submersion injury, trauma, ingestion, cardiac arrhythmias, or even sepsis. But why don't we go ahead and take a bird's eye view and start by defining post-cardiac arrest syndrome in the pediatric critical care population.
0: Successful resuscitation from cardiac arrest results in what is called as post-cardiac arrest syndrome, which can evolve in days to weeks after return of sustained circulation. The components of post-cardiac arrest syndrome are brain injury, myocardial dysfunction, systemic ischemia reperfusion response, and a persistent precipitating pathophysiology. Prior to 2008, the American Heart Association Pediatric Advanced Life Support Guidelines focused chiefly on prevention of cardiac arrest, immediate recognition of cardiac arrest, and provision of early CPR because outcomes of pediatric cardiac arrest were poor. The past decade has led to focused efforts by resuscitation experts to address specific pediatric post-cardiac arrest knowledge gaps. In 2019, August issue of Circulation published a scientific statement from the American Heart Association, which summarizes the epidemiology, pathophysiology, management, and prognostication after return of sustained circulation after cardiac arrest, and it provides a consensus on the current evidence supporting elements of post-cardiac arrest care in pediatrics. In order to provide post-cardiac arrest care, caregivers need to understand the phases of cardiac arrest. Rahul, can you give us more information on the phases of cardiac arrest care?
1: Let me start by defining ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. ROSC refers to the return of sustained circulation, which can include circulation that results either from a perfusing spontaneous heart rhythm or from establishment of extracorporeal circulation with ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. The immediate phase is going to be within the first 20 minutes after ROS. That is followed by the early phase. That is from 20 minutes up to 12 hours after ROS. The intermediate phase is 12 to 72 hours, and the recovery phase is approximately 72 hours to 7 days. So just to summarize, immediate phase, early, intermediate, and recovery. This starts at different times for patients. The timing may be influenced by factors such as cardiovascular function or even use of targeted temperature management. Now, there's another phase which we are also going to be talking about, and that's the rehabilitation phase. Traditionally, this is the application of care after discharge from the acute care hospital. But rehabilitation services are now often initiated during the immediate phase or the recovery phase which is anywhere between 72 hours to 7 days. Pradeep, when we talk about post-cardiac arrest syndrome, can you shed some light on the epidemiology?
0: The timing and severity of the phases of post-cardiac arrest syndrome may differ between patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and those within the hospital cardiac arrest. Because witness status, pre-existing conditions, Cause of arrest and timing and quality of bystander actions, such as immediate administration of high quality CPR, may differ between out of hospital cardiac arrest and in hospital cardiac arrest. It is estimated that more than 5,000 children experience out of hospital cardiac arrest annually in the United States, with an estimated incidence of non traumatic out of hospital cardiac arrest uh, placed at about 8 per 100,000 person years. With current return of spontaneous circulation rates of approximately 36%, the reported survival to discharge in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest still remains poor, between 6 to 10%, although favorable neurological outcome has been reported in 77% of pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivors. One study using PCARN data published in CCM in 2011 Studying targeted temperature monitoring in comatose children who survived out of hospital cardiac arrest to be admitted to the PQ reported that 38% survived to hospital discharge.
1: Thanks, Pradeep, for highlighting those statistics. On the other side, let's talk about in hospital cardiac arrest. An estimated 6,000 infants and children develop in hospital cardiac arrest annually. Non risk adjusted ICU return of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC, occurred in 78% of in-hospital cardiac arrest, with about half, 45%, surviving to discharge. 89% of survivors, i.e. an overwhelming majority of survivors, had favorable neurological outcomes, and this was well-studied by Berg and colleagues in 2016, published in Critical Care Medicine. Approximately 6,500 children per year in the United States have post-cardiac arrest syndrome after their initial arrest. The goal of post-cardiac arrest management, as we will talk about in episode two, is not only survival to hospital discharge, but also with favorable neurological outcome.
0: Rahul, can we dive deeper into the pathophysiology of post-cardiac arrest uh, syndrome? Can we start with brain injury, please?
1: Absolutely. So post-cardiac arrest, brain injury remains a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in adults and children because the brain has limited tolerance of ischemia, hyperemia, or even edema. And that's why it is very important for us to start our pathophysiology talk with this. Let's break down the three phases of post-cardiac arrest syndrome. The first one is going to be hypoxemic, hypotensive, perfusion with energy deprivation. With return of spontaneous circulation, there is a burst of reactive oxygen species, and oxidative stress may ensue in the tissue that is depleted of the normal physiologic antioxidant capabilities. As a result, reperfusion is associated with excitotoxicity, calcium accumulation, and free radical mediated cell injury or death. The myoclonic status seen in our case is probably due to this excitotoxicity. Both neuronal cellular necrosis and apoptosis results from this cascading injury and can actually continue in the days to weeks after return of spontaneous circulation. So it's not just that immediate period, the effects linger on. A variety of post-cardiac arrest clinical conditions including hyperoxia, hypoxemia and hypotension can exacerbate this neuronal injury. Pradeep, let's go ahead and shift from the brain to the heart. Let's talk about cardiac injury in post-cardiac arrest syndrome.
0: Rahul, that's a great question. Global myocardial dysfunction occurs even in absence of a cardiac cause of the arrest and the severity of myocardial dysfunction May be related to the duration of no flow time during cardiac arrest. Myocardial dysfunction has been associated with early mortality despite successful initial resuscitation in both children and adults. The onset of post cardiac arrest myocardial dysfunction begins within hours of arrest, peaks at eight hours, begins to improve somewhat at 24 hours, and typically resolves within 48 to 72 hours. The pathophysiology contributing to this frequently reversible deterioration of cardiac function after cardiac arrest is not fully understood, but is associated with cardiovascular ischemia, reperfusion injury, cytokine-mediated cardiovascular dysfunction, and induced myocardial injury secondary to cathical or electric shocks. Children may initially demonstrate a hyperdynamic state and then develop cardiac dysfunction over time. Because myocardial dysfunction is likely to develop in approximately two-thirds of patients after return of spontaneous circulation and subsequently improve, it is thought to be a modifiable risk factor.
1: That's great, Pradeep. In summary, clinical manifestations of myocardial dysfunction include hypotension, LV and RV systolic or diastolic dysfunction resulting in reduced cardiac output, arrhythmias, and pulmonary edema due to high left atrial pressures and subsequent backup into the pulmonary circulation now all of these factors can result in recurrent cardiac arrest cardiac arrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia noted in our patient are common during post cardiac arrest care and may be exacerbated by catecholamine administration this catecholamine administration is necessary however we need to balance the cardiac effects, which a continuous infusion of epinephrine may have. Rahul,
0: what about systemic ischemia reperfusion in cardiac arrest?
1: That's a great question. And I think that we're building this theme of ischemia reperfusion. We talked about the brain. We talked about the heart. Now let's talk systemically. The combination of systemic ischemia reperfusion produces a state similar to the sepsis syndrome with elevated cytokines, the presence of endotoxin in plasma, activation of coagulation cascade pathways, and inhibition of our endogenous anticoagulant pathways. Transient critical illness hyperglycemia occurs after cardiac arrest from a relative insulin-resistant state that is associated with high levels of endogenous catecholamines and cortisol secretion, with resulting biochemical processes such as gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. Now, in children, these serum glucose is typically elevated in the first 12 to 18 hours after the insult and then falls to normal. And we will see this on our blood gases as we frequently reassess these patients. Clinical manifestations of systemic ischemia reperfusion injury include capillary leak with intravascular hypovolemia. Remember that elevated cytokines occur after return of spontaneous circulation. These patients are going to have vasoplegia and subsequently will have coagulopathy and even adrenal insufficiency. Globally, these patients are going to have impaired oxygen utilization and delivery, contributing to now a multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. I would like to advise our listeners that management of the child after cardiac arrest includes diagnosis and treatment of the precipitating cause of cardiac arrest. Failure to identify and correct the original cause of cardiac arrest leaves the patient at risk for secondary injury and even recurrence of cardiac arrest. So this is a really important point. It's not just about treating post-cardiac arrest syndrome. You want to try and have your diagnostics tailored to identifying the underlying cause of why this patient had a cardiac arrest. This requires a team approach. You're going to get cardiology, genetics, infectious disease, radiologists, toxicologists, etc., on board to investigate the cause of cardiac arrest.
0: So to summarize, the combination of systemic ischemia, reperfusion produces a state similar to sepsis syndrome with elevated cytokines, the presence of endotoxin in plasma, activation of coagulation pathways, and inhibition of anticoagulant pathways. Transient critical illness hyperglycemia occurs after cardiac arrest from a relative insulin-resistant state that is associated with high levels of endogenous catecholamines and cortisol secretion, with resulting gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. In children, the serum glucose is typically elevated in the first 12 to 18 hours after the insult and then falls to normal.
1: So Pradeep, let's go ahead and close out this episode. And discuss monitoring typically used in patients with pediatric postcardiac arrest syndrome. So,
0: Rahul, in the postcardiac arrest period, it is important for the healthcare team to anticipate and assess for evolving systemic and organ dysfunction and to proactively support organ function. This requires ongoing monitoring to guide intensive care therapies. Monitoring in the field continues through the transport and includes electrocardiogram pulse oximetry, capnography, non-invasive blood pressure measurement, and point-of-care glucose testing. General monitoring in the ICU includes continuous cardiac telemetry, pulse oximetry, continuous capnography, continuous temperature monitoring, and measurement of blood pressure and urine output. Monitoring also includes lab analysis of venous arterial blood gases, serum electrolytes, glucose, and calcium concentration. Arterial lactate and central venous oxygen saturation assist in evaluation of the adequacy of tissue oxygen delivery. A chest radiograph aids in the evaluation of endotracheal tube position, heart size, and pulmonary status. Additional monitoring includes evaluation of the renal function, measurement of hemoglobin concentration, monitoring of coagulation function, and assessment for signs of inflammation and infection.
1: Those are great points, Pradeep. I also want to talk a little bit about hemodynamic monitoring. Now, hemodynamic monitoring includes arterial line placement for intraarterial blood pressure monitoring to facilitate the identification and treatment of hypotension. In addition, central venous catheters may be useful to monitor central venous oxygen saturation and to provide a route for the administration of fluids and medications. Pulmonary arterial catheters Are now rarely used in pediatrics. An echo and EKG should be performed in all patients, and the optimal timing or frequency of echo acquisition remains unknown in the literature and can be deciphered on a case by case basis. Let's wrap up and talk about neuromonitoring. Now, serial neurological exams may be helpful in identifying evolving hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Given the high incidence of electrographic seizures after return of spontaneous circulation, continuous EEG monitoring is increasing in use in pediatric post-cardiac arrest care. Neuroimaging can be helpful to identify a cerebral cause of cardiac arrest and the presence of severe brain injury. One small pediatric study that only involved 36 patients, per deep, but was very interesting and published in Resuscitation in 2014, evaluated the role of cerebral autoregulation in guiding hemodynamic management and auction delivery, and assisting in neural prognostication in comatose children after cardiac arrest. But for these advanced technologies, Pradeep, I think more studies are needed.
0: Thank you, Rahul. This concludes our episode on post-cardiac arrest syndrome. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share a feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me and my co host, Dr. Rahul Timania. Stay tuned for our next episode, which covers part two of post cardiac arrest syndrome focused on management. Thank you.